speak to you over the course of these meetings the topic of the unity of the church. The unity of the church. And I, I think um, under the explicit preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the unity of the church is is the central labor and love of my life. That I, I, I can't think of anything more important to me than the unity of the church. And I, I want to show you how I believe that's um, the heart of the Lord Jesus as well. And it, it's my experience that when the church becomes disunified, and by disunified I mean something deeper than just you know, there's one thing when people stop being in the same room, but you can be disunified in the same room, right? You can be in the same room and hearts be miles apart. Husbands and wives can be in the same bed and have have no unity. And and when that unity fades, uh, the preaching of the gospel ceases to do as deep a work as it could. And in fact, it often begins to jade God's people. They can be hearing the best doctrine preached, but when they know so and so and so and so are divided, it just it puts a bitter taste in their mouth, even though they're hearing life giving truth. It can really, really uh, harm our souls. And it's a, it's a hard thing, you know, when you're, you're hearing such good and glorious, such life giving water, but it's not giving you life because you know about divisions in in your marriage maybe or in your family or in in the local church and so i I do want to lay down over the course of this i'm going to say this week this weekend i guess uh really what i hope will be just just a vision for unity and and principles for keeping it and guarding it and relishing the earnestness of it and i hope that that winds up being foundational and helpful uh, to the church here. But, but I'm, I'm also praying, and I wonder if you'll pray, uh, that maybe over the course of this week there's a phone call. It's like, you know, what he's talking about is what's happened in our relationship these last decades. Um, I've had the privilege of serving alongside of a, a, an elder, one particular elder, for the last 15 years. And we just, we never ever disagree on anything. It's perfect. It's glorious. Just kidding. Um, and, 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 uh, and, and we've seen ourselves get sideways with each other. Uh, we've seen our wives just for really even over the course of years not be able to come and see eye to eye. And, and not that we weren't trying, not that there weren't lots of what we call nights on the couch where you're trying to, you're trying to get unity and try to get a common understanding but i know that when that's not going well it it jades everything in church experience and when the lord grants that reconciliation unity it it really winds up just like life-giving waters to to the body and so my hope is that there might even be some phone calls some coffees some lunches some suppers some interactions where maybe there's been something that's developed that God moves in and deals with over the course of these days. So maybe maybe nothing's coming to your mind now. Maybe you're like, oh no, I'm not coming tomorrow night. I don't know where you're at after hearing that. But let, let's just pray that the Lord would do a deep work. And then I'm going to lay this down and then I'm going to start and get into the text. 
the absolutely critical piece to Lake Road Chapel being as effective as possible for the worldwide spread of the gospel is her unity. The absolutely critical piece to Lake Road Chapel being effective in the worldwide spread of the gospel is her warm-hearted unity. Let's uh, turn to John 17 and we'll read uh, what's actually been a very abused passage in uh, thinking about church unity, but hopefully we won't abuse it tonight. Hopefully we'll be faithful to relay what the Lord was praying for. John chapter 17, the Lord Jesus Christ is offering what's often called His high priestly prayer. Some people say this is actually the one that should be called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, The other one that we call the Lord's Prayer should probably be called the Disciples' Prayer since we're the ones praying in the Disciples' Prayer. He's the one praying in John 17. And He prays for three, uh, well, I'd say groups of people, except the first group is just Himself. So in in John 17, 1-5, He prays regarding Himself and His cross work that's really coming real quick. When you get to John 17, John 17, 1-5, then John 17, 6 through 19, he prays for the apostles, that first generation that would pass the, gener- the, the baton on to us, that would give us the gospel and lay the foundation for the church. And then he prays, and this is where we'll look in John 17, 20 and following, he prays for us. This is so encouraging. A few weeks back, I preached at a, at a, at a seminary chapel and uh, I, I, I was going to preach on missions, so I emailed everyone I knew uh, who was involved in international missions. I emailed like 150 people, and I, as I went to preach, I was so excited because I knew I had 150 missionaries praying for me. And if you've got a missionary praying for you, it's a better caliber of prayer, and so I knew it was going to be good. No, I'm just kidding, but, but it, it, I, I knew that there was people who loved to pray, loved God, were praying for me, and so I was excited to preach. And I was thinking to myself today as I was meditating on this passage, but what's 150 missionaries compared to the Lord? The Lord praying for you. He, he, is pray, he prayed for us. That's what we're going to read. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He lives to make intercession for us now. He's praying for this meeting now, that's marvelous. John 17, and I'll read us the whole, the whole chapter. John 17, nobody gave me a time limit, so this is dangerous. Um, so John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You, since You have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they may know You, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. 
I have manifested your name, shown, revealed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you, that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Sorry, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, here's our passage. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may also be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me. I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may be, may, says that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Father, we come before you now as we have read your word, we've heard from you, and we want to ask you to help me explain and apply and exalt and rejoice in and where necessary mourn over uh, your word. And we want to pray, Father, that you would grant us the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for. And I want to ask you, Lord, that you would use me in my weakness to serve my brothers and sisters who I love so that this might church, I might play a little part in this church flourishing for decades to come and the advance of the gospel across the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
I want you to notice just two uh, things this evening. The two things which I want you to notice in this passage are the prayer for unity and the purpose of unity. Notice that Jesus prays for unity. It's not something you can create on your own. Jesus has to pray it into existence. But notice also that there's a purpose to it. That God just doesn't want us to get together and sing kumbaya and just be together in sort of a warm, happy feeling together. But He actually has a purpose in this unity. And the purpose is deeply related to the cause of bringing all nations to worship Him around the throne. So notice, first of all, that Jesus says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only. Here's the prayer for unity. He's not, he's been asking, he's been asking for himself, that he would have the glory which he had before the foundation of the world. He's been asking for the apostles, they wouldn't be taken out of the world, that they'd be kept while they're in the world. And now he's not just praying for himself and for the apostles, but he doesn't just ask for these, he asks also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now this is very important, you've got to get this. Jesus is praying for all the future generations who will come after Him who will believe in His Word. Now, the first thing you should know is that's a pretty bold thing to do. To assume just before you are crucified that there will be future generations there to believe. There's a story about Babe Ruth one time in a game pointing out at the outfield and calling his shot and saying, this is where I will place my home run. And then legend has it, he put it exactly there. Well, the Lord Jesus is basically saying, there will be a people who believe on me once I'm gone. And that's exactly what happens. And we are literally here at the ends of the earth tonight as living proof that Jesus knew exactly how the history of the world was going to unfold. There would be a people who would believe in Him, and here they are, and they have been present in every generation since He died and rose again. Now, it's important to know that He's praying for those who believe in Him, because when you understand that, it keeps you from the most popular abuse of the following verse. He prays that they may all be one. He prays for this unity. He prays for a unity of the church. And many uh, have taken this verse and said, this means we need to have a great big global church. We need to have a world council of churches. We need to get the Catholics and the Lutherans and the Baptists and the non-denominational folks. We need to get them all under one big organizational body. And we need to have one big global church because Jesus prayed for our unity. And of course, who who's got a bit of a tender heart can't feel a little bit of love for that. I mean, who likes all the divisions in Christendom? Who loves all the different churches from different denominations on different street corners? None of us love that inherently. And yet, to hope that all people who call themselves Christians will get themselves into one big organization explicitly goes against what Jesus is teaching because He is only praying for the unity of those who believe in Him through the Word of the Apostles. 
In other words, if you reject the word of the apostles, like liberal Christianity does, Jesus is not praying for your unity in the local church. If you reject the authority of the scriptures and place the authority of popes over it, like the Catholic Church does, Jesus is not praying for the unity of all people who call themselves Christians. Do you see that here? He's only praying. Notice it there. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. So the people he wants to see unified are Bible believers. He wants to see those who love the word of God and have come to believe in the shed blood of Jesus Christ through the word of God. He wants those people to be unified. Now, what kind of unity is he talking about and what is just stunning is that you can't go three or four words here from now on without getting deeper and deeper into the glory of who God is he says here that they may all be one and then I'm just gonna I'm sure he didn't do this but imagine if you will that Jesus had to search for an illustration he would go no further than the triune God Himself. We have to be very careful, beloved. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about the Abrahamic faiths, the monotheistic religions, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism are all one God religions, monotheistic religions. And yet, we need to be very clear, Christianity is not simply a monotheistic religion. We are a Trinitarian religion. Allah is the loneliest character in the universe. For eternity, one and alone. It's horrid. The only thing Allah can think of as a prize is celestial virgins because there's nothing in Him to give anyone. He's the lonely God. But the God of the Bible is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is three and they are one. He comes out of this infinite community that's existed for all eternity there has been love ever since well you can't even speak about the dawn of time since before the dawn of time there's been the love of the father for the son and the son for the father in the holy spirit this is the kind of monotheism we're talking about not a lonely god up in heaven who's one and alone but one who is one and three father son and holy spirit And now Jesus says, I want them to be one. Not just like a band of brothers in a World War II movie. And not just like a a, a hockey team that wins a a Stanley Cup. And not, not just the kind of like the unity we sometimes see glimmers of in the world. Not just like the unity of a husband and wife on their wedding night. But no, I want them to be one just like this. Father, that they may be one just as Father are in me and I in you. And so the unity that the Lord Jesus wants us to experience is a unity in diversity. Because that's what God has. God is one unity, and yet there's a real diversity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's amazing Because we as a church are called what in 1 Corinthians 12.14? We're called the body of Christ. And we are given a unity in diversity. The church is not a band of lemmings. 
The church is not a bunch of people who put on uniforms and try to erase all their individuality. There's a real diversity. There's a real uniqueness. I know that liberals have grabbed this uh, term, but we are all kind of snowflakes. We are utterly unique. We are, each of us, totally unique, and yet... We have been brought together in one body. And just like God is one and many at the same time, we who are many are also one. So the unity we're talking about is unity and diversity. Now let me just stop there for a second and say this. When we say that people are made in the image of God, we don't mean the image of Allah. Because Allah is not a relational God. Relationships are something He had to invent, not something inherent to Himself. We are made in the image of the triune God. Which means that when men say that they're less relational than women, they're full of garbage. It means that they're just injo- they've adopted some cultural lie that simply isn't true. Men are relational beings just like women are relational beings because they're made in the image of a relational God. I sure hope you weren't made out of the unrelational chip off of God, which there isn't. No, we were made in the image of God, which means that when a husband and wife aren't relating in union because he's less relational... They're actually just believing a lie rather than repenting of sin that will lead them back into unity. You follow me? Who would have thought that the difference between Yahweh and Allah made that much difference in our practical lives? And yet it does. So he prays that we would mirror the unity of God, the Father and the Son, that we would mirror that very kind of unity. But not only that would we mirror it, notice what I'm getting at here, that they all may be one just as mirroring the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father, but not just that we would mirror it, but we would participate in it. We actually participate in the unity of God. Let me read these verses one more time to you and show this to you. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And then he spells it out in verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. So we've been, in some sense, brought into the unity of the Godhead. The unity of the triune God. Now, this does not mean that we've been made little gods and sort of lumped into God. That's not what this means at all. We haven't been deified. But it means that we have been united with the Lord Jesus Christ And the Lord Jesus Christ was already united with His Father. So He bound Himself to manhood, and then He bound us to Him in a spiritual union, and now we are in a relationship with God that is not simply one of following. I know it's easy to pick on the what would Jesus do bracelets, but let me do it. We, as Christians, are not simply in a relationship where Jesus is out there and we ask, what should we do to follow Him? 
We are in a relationship where we're bound with Him. United with Him. Think of the images the Scriptures use to describe this unity. I'm the vine. You're the branches. Now when I look out in my backyard and people say, what's in your backyard? I don't say, well, there's this one trunk and then there's these branches. I say, i got some trees out there. They're one. The life-giving sap of the tree is feeding the branches. Not only are we compared to a vine and a branches, but we're called, to, we're, we're called living bricks, living stones in the temple of God. Uh, recently, our church, and thank you for praying, received a new building. And when asked, someone asks me, uh, where, where do you meet? I don't say, there is an accumulation of bricks at the corner of 4th and Breckenridge. No, we're one. When a husband and wife are married, the Bible tells us that's a picture of the union that Christ has with His church. And so we must be clear that the union that the church enjoys with Jesus is the foundation for the church's union with one another. Beloved, you're all branches on the same tree. And the tree is united to God. You are all bricks in the same temple. And the temple is God's dwelling place. You are all the bride of Christ. And Christ is God's. So in everything that we are, when we talk about church unity, we are not talking about arranging to get together for meetings at the same time. That, that's way down the line. We, we, are, we are not talking about having a common culture. That, that's actually not something we have in the church. The church attracts people from all different cultures and backgrounds. What we're talking about is that we have a common life. We have what Henry Skugel called the life of God in the soul of man. Or as the BDN Yabwile said it, we have the life of God in the soul of the church. That's the unity we're talking about. That's what Jesus is praying for. Well, if, he, if, he, if, he, if we have it, why is He praying for it? Because the enjoyment of that unity is something progressive. The enjoyment of that unity is something progressive. Do you notice that in verse 23? He says, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. They're united with me, but I want them to become perfectly one. And so why is he praying? He's praying because there are so many enemies to our unity. I would venture to say almost every book of the New Testament is written to preserve our unity. We've been studying through Romans and Emmanuel, and one of the things we've been noticing is how over and over and over, Paul says, the Gospel's for the Jew first, and also the Gentile. You're equally sinful. You're equally saved. And then he, he comes to Romans 14, he says, so welcome each other, you Jew and Gentiles. Even though you've got different convictions on these secondary issues, welcome each other. So the book of Romans is wrestling with how do you get Jews and Gentiles who hate one another to love one another and view themselves as spiritual equals. 1 Corinthians, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. 
I'm of Cephas. And then the really holy ones. I'm of Jesus. And Paul's laboring because he sees this division in the church. Galatians. Some are going after another gospel. And Peter and Barnabas even were sucked into this anti-gospel gospel where the Jews and the Gentiles had to be split up. Ephesians chapter 2, which we'll look at a little bit tomorrow, is talking about how the Jew and Gentile are the temple of the Holy Spirit and they've been made one new man. Uh, You get into the book of Philippians and it gets really practical. Hey, tell Syntyche and Utica to get along there at the end. Can you imagine getting called out in a book of the New Testament? So it's going to last forever. And so so this is a big deal for the apostle. This is this is a passion of of every writer. What's 1 John all about? 1 John is all about there's some that went out from you and if they went out from you they weren't really from you and so I need to help you understand who are the true people of God. Book after book after book after book in the New Testament is wrestling with this. Why? Because Jesus prayers are opposed by the work of the devil. Keeping the unity of the church is hard work. Keeping warm-hearted fellowship is really good in Acts 2, but it's under threat by the time you get to Acts 6. It's constantly under attack. And that is why we have this comfort. How can I believe that this church will be able to grow in unity? Jesus prayed for it. Jesus prayed for it. And if anyone has effective prayers, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And He, just on the eve of His death, had this primary concern. Lord, let them be one. That is Jesus' prayer for unity. Now you might say to yourself, if He came to die for a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, why wasn't He praying about that right before He died? Why would He get down in the weeds and pray for the unity of little bands of Christians all over the planet. And it's because he believed, as I believe, and as I hope you will believe, that the unity of local congregations is mission critical. Mission critical to the advance of the Great Commission, the winning of the lost all across the world to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice two purpose statements. We talked about the prayer for unity. Now look at these purpose statements in verse 21 and 23. Jesus prays that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That, here's the purpose, here's why, here's why I want the unity, here's the purpose, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When the church is unified, then there will be those in the world who believe that Jesus was sent by God the Father. Look at verse 23. 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, there's your purpose statement, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. When I was a new believer, I had this passion, I hope I still have it, but it was keen in those early months to see people come to Jesus. I I wanted to do something to see more people come to know Jesus Christ. But I I didn't know what to do. I I mean, and I wasn't trying to be silly here. I just, like, what do you do to get people's attention? Like, I I thought maybe does everyone need to start dressing differently? And of course, the Amish have gone that direction. You know, there's just like, what do we do to, to section ourselves off and say, hey, we got something. And you know, you can, you can go up and down the streets yelling every now and then, but you can't do that every day. It's not an effective method. And, and, and I'm like, well, what, what, what do we do? And the longer I've been a Christian, as I've thought about what do you do to attract the attention of the world, the more and more I am committed to this idea, you plant and grow local, healthy, loving, united churches. Because when there are healthy holy, loving, united churches, people get saved. Now I know, I know I'm supposed to say, no, not everyone's going to get saved. I, I, I know. But a lot of people will. And, and I believe, look, look, what, look what Jesus says. He, he's so unnuanced. I love it. He says, verse 21, that they also may be in us, so that the world, and of course the world is this evil system against God in John's Gospel, so that the world may what? May believe that you sent me. That's the whole purpose of John's Gospel. If you've read to the end of John's Gospel, you know this is why he wrote this, that people might believe in Jesus. So how do people come to believe in Jesus? Well, they see the unity of the church. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now, there's that absolutely awful saying you've probably seen crocheted on someone's wall. It's attributed to St. Francis sometimes. Not Pope Francis, but St. Francis. It says, preach the gospel at all times. Maybe some of you could finish it for me. If necessary, use words. That's just awful. It's, it's always necessary to use words. The, the, the word, our God is a speaking God. And unless you're John the Baptist, and He's going to regenerate you in the womb, which is super rare. <laughs> it requires that they be sent and hear in order that they be saved. But, having said that, having said that words are necessity, the local church's unity and love has a strong, confirming, magnetic power in the process of people being converted. I myself can say that in the course of my ministry, and I've been preaching for for 15 years at one pulpit, I'm aware of one person who was, a, who was saved while I was preaching. One. I'm preaching. They're not converted. 
Then they're converted at the end of the sermon. I've seen one. But I've seen lots where they start to get into the sphere of the church. And they're hearing the Word of God. And then they're seeing the lives of the people. It kind of works like this. You remember the old expression? Maybe you've heard this. Uh, as many people were saved through Edith Schaefer's cinnamon buns as through Francis Schaefer's sermons. The cinnamon buns and the sermons, they work together. And the local church and the preaching of God's Word work together. The one confirming the other or denying the other. The one being, uh, what's Paul's word in Titus there? He says that the, 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 the gospel, the lives of Christians adorn the gospel. I don't know if you, some of you ladies might look down at your wedding rings. You might notice, uh, if you're married, that the diamond you have is set in white gold. Even if you've got a yellow gold band, the diamond is set in white gold. And the reason for that is diamonds don't shine real bright set in yellow gold. It discolors the diamond. But the setting is made of white gold to make the diamond sparkle. And the gospel diamond is to be set in the white gold of the lives of the church. The holy unity of the church makes the gospel shine. And it teaches doctrine. Have you ever studied in the New Testament how many doctrines are taught by the holy, loving unity of the church? It's fascinating. It's unbelievable. Let me show you a few. Let's just start where we are. So here you've got the unity of the church teaching, one, that there is a Father, and that His Son, who's been sent, is to be believed on. See that in verse 21? That they may all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they may be in us, so the world may believe that You, now there's God the Father, have sent Me. So you've got belief, Father, Son, all coming out of the unity of the church. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you loved me. Loved them even as you love me. So now you've got the world learning that the church is beloved by God. Isn't that amazing? This isn't, go back to John 13. Here's another one. John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus just finished washing feet. And after He's finished washing feet, He says in verse 34, chapter 13, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer said, Jesus in this verse gives the world the right to judge us. And if you've ever wondered, well, how are we going to distinguish ourselves from the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses? I mean, what are we going to do? Well, getting angry apologists is not the right answer. The way you distinguish yourself as the true people of God is love. And you see, it says right here, the world will know you're my disciples. Well, you say, well, the world doesn't even believe in Jesus. Believe it or not, the Holy Spirit can teach the world. 
remember that under every callous heart is a buried conscience. And above everything, that conscience knows that loving unity is right. And the community that has loving unity is right. And there, loved by God, their son is to be believed, their father is to be believed. There's more though. Look at Philippians. We're thinking about the idea that that the church teaches doctrine. That it actually, that its actual life teaches doctrine. Look at Philippians. This this one just strikes me so amazingly. Um, Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul. I'm sorry. uh, Galatians chapter 1. Verse 27. Watch what unity does not only to the Christian soul, but does to the unbelieving soul. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, side by side, for the faith of the Gospel. When you talk about one spirit, one mind, side by side, what topic are we talking about? Unity. And and we're going to look at this tomorrow. That's what's worthy of the Gospel. What's worthy of the Gospel is a united church. What does it look like to be a united church? It means you've got one mind. You're all thinking about Christ. It means that you have one Spirit. All have the Spirit of Christ. And you're striving side by side in lockstep, arm in arm, for the faith of the Gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them. This unity of the church is a sign to your opponents. Just like a stop sign tells you to stop. Just like a yield sign tells you to yield. If you're united, it's a sign. What does the sign mean? This sign is a sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. Do you see what's happening? This church is staying together. They're being persecuted, but they're staying together. They're loving one another. And it's saying to the world, you will be destroyed. It's also saying to the world, we're the true disciples, John 13. And it's also saying to the world, we're loved by God. And it's also saying to the world, God sent His Son. And it's also saying to the world, you should believe in Him. The unity of the church is proclaiming the core doctrines of salvation to the world. Now, our church is part of the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptists love evangelism. Evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. They love evangelism but they don't always like getting their churches in order. And I'm always sitting there going, you can do all the evangelism you want, but if you've not got holy, loving, united churches, you are not confirming the truth you're preaching. Jesus says in Romans, no, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, that it was because of the ungodliness of the Jews that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles. 
when the people of God live in a disunified, unholy, unloving way and then talk about God, it actually creates a bitter taste in people's mouths. And the reason we hear so much cursing around us and so much cussing is because churches have very often given Jesus such a bad name. And yet there's another option for us in the New Testament, which is the book of Acts, where even the unbelievers are in awe of the believers. Now, I want to close this by looking a little bit at the book of Acts. And what I, what I want you to notice is, what did Jesus pray for? Unity. That's not like the preacher's going to answer his own questions, Dare. That's like the... So, Jesus prayed for unity, and the purpose of the unity was so the world would know, so the world would believe. And then we went to the rest of the New Testament, we saw there's actually quite a bit the church that the world comes to believe through unity. Who the true disciples are, who sent Jesus, who's loved by God, who's going to hell, who's going to heaven. All this is taught from the unity of the church. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. You'll remember, gospel is preached, first Christian sermon. Many are cut to the heart, 3,000 are saved and baptized in one day. And they, verse 42, in a united way, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's how you cultivate one mind. And the fellowship, they were, they were enjoying each other's company, eating together. The breaking of bread, this Lord's Supper, which we're told if we take rightly, blesses us. If we take wrongly, the disunity harms us. And they were giving themselves to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and all things in common. They were united and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So they're happy about being together. They don't just have to get together one more Sunday. They're not just dragging themselves out of bed to go do the meeting. They're, they're gathering together, praising God, and having favor with all the people. And this should not surprise us. This should not surprise us. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who are being saved. That's the way it works. The church sees the glory of Christ, participates in a united life in Him, loves one another, proclaims the Gospel, and people get saved. That is how God loves to advance His kingdom. You see it again in Acts chapter 4 through 6. It kind of gets a little bit complicated here, but it's quite quite amazing. Uh, Acts chapter 4. And we have this amazing comment here in Acts chapter 4. 
uh, where uh, the, uh, it says in verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There's that unity again. And no one said that anything that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Hmm. There's all the ingredients there for more conversions. United Church, selling what you have. There should be conversions. Instead, there's an interruption of the unity. Ananias and Sapphira decide they're going to fake this unity thing. Hey, this looks good. Look good on a resume. Give a little money. Make me look good with the apostles. Instead, they're both dropped dead because they were trying to act like they had this loving unity when they didn't really have it. And as soon as that's cleared up, verse 12 of chapter 5 comes. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the number, multitudes of both men and women. Unity disrupted, problems solved, people being gathered in one more time because there was this real unity. Was an evangelist to uh, Belgium years ago by the name of Johann Lucas, and he was trying to uh, plow in the hard Catholic soil, and he was not having any success. And uh, so he decided that what he would do is he would get a bunch of Christians to live together, so they could display their unity to a watching world, and people would get saved. So he moved some Dutch Christians in and some American Christians in and maybe some Belgian Christians in and they lived together and they did what Christians do when they all live together. They fought and, and, they, and they got disunified. But then they did the next thing Christians should do. They began to pray. And as they began to pray, God gave them the grace to actually love one another again. And they actually became known as the people who love one another. And people began to be converted in Belgium. It's a glorious thing. What would hinder the unity of this church? What would keep this church from having that kind of magnetic unity? One of the things can be that we just lose a hunger for seeing more of Christ's glory. And when the church doesn't see more of Christ's glory, then they just get bored. And the vibrancy and the zeal of our unity begins to be tarnished. Another thing that can happen in a church is you get folks who come in who aren't on the same page and it takes the time to teach them and to bring them into the same teaching. And that can be a very bumpy process because if you bring eight people in, Maybe six of them stick around and a couple of them go. And when they go, they don't always go happily. One of the things that can happen to a church 
is that you just get to be around people too much for too long. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of exciting to endure the sins of a new believer, isn't it? New believers, they come with kind of, you know, kind of cool sins. Of course, they're not cool in the sight of God, but it's, it's fun to see a new believer even though they got these rough edges. The problem is 30 years in when you're still going to church with that same person. And you remember the rough edges. And they still look rough. You ever notice that your parents, even when you're 50, remember you like you're 10? It's amazing. My wife can be driving with her parents. She's 40 years old. Hey, they start critiquing your driving. And often we're together with people. We see them in the infancy of their faith. And we still see all the things that haven't really changed that much. And you go through that decade after decade. You see how people aren't growing as much as you like. They've grown. They're marvelously transformed. But you'd love to see a lot more marvelously transformed. And it becomes very difficult to keep the warmth and the zeal and the love and the overabounding love for them. And what I want to do over the course of this weekend is think about that. How do you guard that? So tomorrow we'll look at the character required to guard unity. On the next day, Saturday, we'll look at the holiness. How we guard the holiness that's necessary for real unity. Sunday morning, we'll look at Romans 14 and think about the wisdom you need to know what to let go and what to deal with in order to guard unity. And then Sunday morning, we'll think about the urgency of guarding this unity. All so that Christ's prayer might be answered by His Word and the nations might be saved by the witness of His people. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would give Your grace to us to see anywhere where we have allowed disunity into the church. And Lord, we pray that You would grant us the spiritual vitality and life, the skill, the wisdom, the urgency to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Father, we want to pray that You would grant this here so that You might be glorified and so that hordes of people from Kirksville might even be saved. And Lord, so we might even see people from across the world converted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.